I didn't understand a word you said, and I don't believe any of it. That's what Nancy told me a few years ago. We were at the funeral of her uncle, Ed, who had been a member of our church for a number of years. Ed suddenly and unexpectedly passed away. And at his funeral service, I was asked to read from John chapter 11, that famous passage about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. I read 44 verses from that chapter, and what I thought was a slow and clear and articulate and passionate manner. In fact, Nancy said as much. After the, after the service was over, she, she made a point to come up to me and say, you're the one who read scripture, right? Yes. Oh, it was very passionate. And, and so I asked, well, well, what were your thoughts about that passage? And Nancy honestly replied, I didn't understand a word you said, and I don't believe any of it. I wonder if that describes you a bit this Easter morning. Appreciating the, the passion that others might have, that others feel on this occasion, but in your heart of hearts, not really believing any of it. I mean, not with all the competing views out there, not with all the hardships in this life or all the strangeness of this idea of a resurrection. Maybe you won't voice that this morning. Or maybe there's a bit in you, maybe hidden in the recesses of your heart, that echoes what Nancy was thinking. I don't understand a word you say and I don't believe any of it. But we need help this morning. We need help to fight unbelief. And praise God that he gives us his word to fight back against the battles of unbelief, the battles of not trusting in the Lord. And so if you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 22? And this morning we'll continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew, looking at verses 23 through 33. Matthew chapter 22, verses 23 through 33. If you're new with us this morning, we've been working through the gospel of Matthew for a number of years, on and off. And so we find ourselves near the close of chapter 22. And if you need a Bible to follow along, which will be of help, you can find one under the chairs in front of you. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we, we'd love for you to take that Bible home. That's our gift to you. Matthew chapter 22 verses 23 through 33. We read this. The same day, Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, 
whose wife will she be? Well, they all had her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. If we had to sum up a, a big idea, a main point from this passage, this is what I think it would be. Kind of main point of Matthew 22, 23 through 33. Don't doubt the power of God. He is able to grant life after death. Don't doubt the power of God. He is able to grant life after death. We find ourselves here again in the last week of Jesus' earthly life. It's the Tuesday of this final week, but the content matter has a great deal to do with what we 2,000 years celebrate on this and every other Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus. Resurrection is the main subject of this confrontation. Yet another confrontation with the religious leaders in their plans to destroy Jesus. Remember last week, we, we saw in verses 15 through 22, a, a, a confrontation with the Pharisees. As they asked Jesus a question about paying taxes, about one's allegiance to either God or government, in order to try to trap Jesus, to catch him up in his words. Well, we read here in verse 23 that the same day, another group of religious leaders approached Jesus, the Sadducees, who together with the Pharisees made up the religious ruling party of the Sanhedrin. These Sadducees differed greatly from the Pharisees. They were the aristocrats, the wealthy, the well-off, the more sophisticated of the two. They wore blazers when they preached. And their sophistication showed up in their theology. Uh, so they only believed in the first five books of the Bible. The Torah, the, the law that mighty Moses wrote. And they disbelieved any silly-sounding notions such as angels, or spirits, or resurrection. While the Pharisees believed in all these things. So they were different from the Pharisees in doctrine, but united in purpose. They, too, asked Jesus a question to try to entrap him, discredit him, in an effort to ultimately destroy him. And as we walk through this passage this morning, I, I want us to hang our thoughts on, on, on four observations that we see scattered throughout these, these verses in this confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees. So four points to the sermon. Number one, we see that death is certain. Amen. Death is certain. Number two, we see that death seems final. Death seems final. Number three, we see that denial is stubborn. 
Denial is stubborn. And number four, we see that divine wisdom and power defeat everything. Divine wisdom and power defeat everything. Number one, we see that death is certain. And now we'll see that there's some disbelief in this passage about what happens after death. But notice up front, there's no curiosity about death itself. It happens and affects everyone. You see that here in this passage? Just notice the dominance of death in these few verses. The Pharisees approach Jesus in, in verse 24 and say, if a man dies, Verse 25, they bring up a hypothetical scenario. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Verse 26, so too the second and the third down to the seventh, and we are supposed to fill in the blank. What did they all do? They all died. Verse 27, after them all, the woman died. They may have some qualms about the afterlife, but there's no uncertainty from the uh, Sadducees about how this life ends. Everybody dies. And now you might be sitting there this morning thinking, okay, big deal. That's not some groundbreaking discovery. For the most, most part, all of us know that death happens. That's just how life is. But that's the point. That's not how life is supposed to be. That's not what life is is supposed to be intended for. I know that's hard for us to see. Hard for us to, to wrap our heads around what with so much death around us. Death from disease. Death from wars. Death from murders. Death from malpractices. We've just come to expect and accept death as normal. I remember a, a few years ago, many years ago now, it feels like, when me and my wife were dating, and I was taking her home one evening, and we passed by a person who had just been killed up here on Iverson Street, their body lying on the ground in the parking lot with police surrounding them. And Steph was immediately emotional, moved by this horrific scene, and wondering why I wasn't as moved, as upset. And I kind of responded, that's just what happens out here. It revealed a callous heart, a heart that had grown to accept death as normal. I should have been just as horrified as her by it. We all should because of what it represents. You know, sometimes I, I think that because we view death as common, we forget that death is a consequence. That is, that death is because something has gone wrong or rather to kill this kind of passive language, death is because we have done wrong. You see, death has been introduced into the world because sin has been introduced into the world. Because we have sinned against a good and a perfect and a holy God. And the wages of sin is death. No sin, no death. But as the Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, because all have sinned, death has spread to all men. Death is certain for sinners. 
It's not something that just happens. It is God's judgment. Do you believe that? On the other side of chasing that sin, fulfilling that pleasure, satisfying that desire, is not life or joy or peace or rest, but death. The Sadducees had something right. Everybody dies. Friend, you will die. Are you prepared for it? By that, I don't mean have you drafted a will or have you listed instructions for what songs will be sung at your funeral service. But are you prepared to die and to meet your maker, to meet your God? Or have you moved that thought far out of your mind because you've minimized death as simply the fate for everyone without reckoning with why it happened? and what happens after it. For you, death is not only certain, but death seems final. And that's the second observation we, we want to consider in this passage. Death seems final. That's not hard to see, is it? I mean, if, if you've ever sat beside the, the body of a family member in a hospital room whose life has just left them, or stood next to a stiff corpse in a casket at a funeral service. Or watched as that casket has been lowered six feet into the ground at a gravesite. You know that death often feels like a forever goodbye. The end of someone's existence. And that's what the, the Sadducees thought. You see that in verse 23 as Matthew explicitly tells us that the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection. The Jewish historian Josephus, writing in the first century, confirms, saying that the doctrine of the Sadducees is this, that souls die with the bodies. They take away the belief of the immortal duration of the soul and the belief in punishments and rewards after death. For them, there is no afterlife. No heaven or hell to go to. So these Sadducees would not be in church today. And would think we're quite silly for our being here and what we're celebrating. They fall in line with many modern people who don't believe in a resurrection. Atheists and secularists. Jehovah's Witness and the Nation of Islam. And according to a BBC poll a few years ago, even a quarter of professing Christians. But why don't they believe? Well, again, these Sadducees only held that the first five books of the Bible were authoritative. And as they read Genesis and Exodus, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, they didn't see any clear references to any supposed notions of an afterlife. No, you live this life and then there's nothing more. But their limited catalog of Scripture limited them from seeing clear references to resurrection in the books of the Old Testament beyond the first five. For instance, in Job chapter 19, Job makes this remarkable statement. In his intense suffering, suffering that seemingly would soon lead to death, Job says this in Job chapter 19, verses 25 and 26. I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. 
And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I shall see God. My flesh will be destroyed in this life. Yet in my flesh, in my body, in another life to come, I shall see God. Or consider what David says in Psalm chapter 16, as he speaks with confidence in verses 9 and 10, saying, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. Why? For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. The prophets also speak of this life, after death, of the reality of a resurrection. Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19, in pointing Israel to a future hope and a future glory beyond the grave, says, your dead shall live. Their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The prophet Daniel, writing a couple hundred years after Isaiah, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 2, says, Many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. You see, beloved, while death may seem final to us, death is not final according to God. Amen. Notice how Matthew carefully states the matter as it relates to the Sadducees in verse 23. They say that there is no resurrection. But their say is not the final say. It's not what they say, it's what the Bible says that's important. They say that there is no resurrection, but the Bible says something different. You see, it doesn't matter what, what no man or woman says. It, it matters what the Bible says. And do people's words match up with what it says? Perhaps you remember that old children's song that your parents taught you growing up. Jesus loves me. This I know. For what? The Bible tells me so. The final judgment of a matter, the grounds for every one of our beliefs, is not what I say. It's not what you say. It's not what your experience says. It's not what your education or your training says. It's not what the church says. It's not what the culture says. It's what does the Bible say? Amen. The Bible says that the dead will rise again. So the question is, who are you listening to? Who are you believing? Is that TV preacher? Or that TV personality? that book or that blog, that new age philosophy, your inner reasoning, a better, more reliable, more authoritative guide than God. Would you dare say that? I think we see here the danger of a condensed Bible. You can build entire doctrines or tear down entire doctrines if you prioritize a select number of verses of Scripture to the neglect of others. Amen. That's why here at Temple Hills Baptist Church, we hold every single word of the Bible to be true Amen. without one single error. We hold every single word of the Bible to be authoritative, Amen. 
All scripture is breathed out by God, and all scripture is useful for preaching and teaching and uh, rebuke and correction. And we need all of scripture to convict all of our hearts and to challenge every single bit of unbelief. Had the Pharisees just kept on reading, they would have seen that what they said conflicted with what the Bible says, that resurrection is indeed real. But you know, there's another reason why people reject the resurrection. They think that death is final and there's nothing after it. Not simply because they can't find any clear scriptures. It's because it gives them a license to live like they want now. I mean, if there are no repercussions in the future, positive or negative, no rewards for doing good and no retribution for doing wrong, then you can make this life, this present life, one prolonged party. I mean, later on in the passage that Adam read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul says in verse 32, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If death is the end-all be-all, then you have every warrant to mimic Joel Osteen and Snoop Dogg and Lil Duval and be living your best life now. I mean, if there's no afterlife, then you might as well fill this life with satisfying every desire for greed and grandeur and your own personal glory. Because it's all over after this. Bodies decay are eaten by worms. The chapter on you ends as a person. There's no part of you that remains or is renewed or is risen. Body and soul come to an end. That's what it might seem like when, when you look into that casket, when you stare at that corpse. That's what the science says, what your well-reasoned knowledge says, what your experience says. People just don't come back from death. You've never seen it happen. And so you've concluded that it can't happen. And really, maybe deep inside, you, you think it's quite silly to think that it will happen. That's where the, the Sadducees were. Death is death, and you can't and shouldn't expect anything after it. They denied the resurrection as a starting point. And it led them to try to discredit and destroy anyone who would believe such a fairy tale hope for a happy ending. Which leads to the third observation we see in this passage that denial is stubborn. Denial is stubborn. That is, you can oppose something so strongly that seemingly nothing and no one can move you from your position. Instead, you assume you must be right and vilify anyone who dares disagree. We see that in verses 23 through 28 from the uh, Sadducees, don't we? We learn in verse 23 that their stance regarding resurrection is that there is no resurrection. They're against it. But they're not willing simply to hold their convictions personally. They have to heave them at Jesus to, to show how superior their stance is to his. How silly he is to believe in such a thing. It's quite astounding, really, isn't it? It shows quite a bit of hubris on their part to take this stance 
before Jesus, assuming they could tear him apart with it. I mean, again, consider where we are. This is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, which means he's had three years of public ministry of the sorts that no one had ever seen. Not only was Jesus saying some amazing things that had circulated among the Jewish people, such as, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. He predicted other people's resurrection by believing in him. And he predicted his own resurrection. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, he said that he would be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. He was saying some amazing things and doing even more amazing things. I mean, he verbally spoke of raising the dead, and he himself physically acted and raised the dead. We saw it back in chapter 9 of, of this book, when in verse 18, a ruler comes up to Jesus saying, my daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. Seven verses later, we read that Jesus went, took the girl by the hand, and she arose. In Luke 7, Jesus goes to a town called Nain. And verse 12 tells us that as he approached the town gate, that he came upon a funeral procession. A man who had died was being carried out of the city. The text tells us he was the only son of his mother, and she was in considerable grief. Verses 13 through 15 of that passage tell us that when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Then Jesus came up and touched the coffin stand and the pallbearer stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. Well, again, perhaps most famous of all was the incident I spoke of in, in the opening. In John chapter 11, when Jesus goes to the tomb of his, fr of his friend Lazarus, who had been dead for four days, his sisters were like, we cannot do nothing with him. He stinks by now. He's been in there a long time. Jesus, just leave him alone. But Jesus demands that the, the stone be rolled away from the tomb, that the tomb would be opened. And Jesus stands by this tomb and shouts out, Lazarus, come forth. And John eleven forty five 45 says, the man who had died came out. Amen. These things were all public knowledge. Accounts of them were swirling around Jerusalem, especially leading up to this last week. And yet, in this last week, these Sadducees come to the one who says he is the resurrection, the one who has brought back the dead to life, still confident that there is no resurrection, no life after death. Again, it shows us how stubborn denial can be. Even in the face of strong evidence to the contrary, it refuses to change course. That's how deep unbelief is. So, so you have to stop and ask yourself here, which is really more silly? 
believing something that seems unbelievable, like a resurrection, or disbelieving it, even though there are mountains of reasons to believe it. But these Sadducees won't stop to ponder. They're on full go to make Jesus look like a fool in the eyes of the Jews, which would just make it easier to oppose him openly and to call for his death. And and so they come to Jesus with this creative, seemingly biblically sounding, logically tight question in verses 24 through 28. Uh, Look there with me in in those verses 24 through 28 of of chapter 22. Uh, They say, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Uh, Notice here they appeal to Moses. That's acceptable. They believe Moses' writings. And they appeal to a law that's found in Deuteronomy chapter uh, chapter 25, verses 5 through 6. A law that God laid down to perpetuate a family name of a deceased Israelite. If a man died with no children to carry on his name, then his brother was to, to pick up the baton, to marry his widow and provide children so that his brother's family name and his inheritance could go on. These Sadducees know the law. But notice how they use the law. They concoct a scenario from it for the purposes of exposing resurrection to be a complete joke. Who would believe that? I mean, look at verse 25. Launching off this biblical command from Deuteronomy, they say, Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and the third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection of the seven, whose wife will she be? Well, they all had her. It's an outrageous scenario. Sure, it's a possible situation, but highly unlikely that seven brothers would all die in succession None of them having any children and each trying to fulfill the Deuteronomy duty to provide a child for the deceased brother's widow. None are successful. Zero out of seven. All pass away, and then finally the woman herself dies. And then the question in the resurrection, well, whose wife will she be? Now again, remember, they don't even believe in a resurrection. Now they claim that at least eight people will rise. Seven husbands and a wife. Just to prove how ridiculous the the whole concept is. They're so stuck against Jesus. So stuck against resurrection that they're willing to play devil's advocate. Literally. In opposing the Son of God. The whole thing is supposed to make Jesus look, look rather silly for believing something so stupid. I mean, if this resurrection thing is real, tell us what it will look like. You're going to have seven brothers and one wife? Sadly, that kind of thing would would probably make primetime reality TV shows now. But it's hardly the kind of resurrection life that any respectable Jew would look forward to. I mean, you, a Jew, trying to live a pious life now, Obey, uh, obeying Moses' commands, you do all that only to spend an entire eternity in forced polygamy? What? You see how stupid that sounds, Jesus? 
Whose wife will this woman be? Whose wife, Jesus, in your little scheme or your little silly little game of resurrection? It was meant to be a mockery of the whole idea, a mockery of him. The goal was to make Jesus out to be not some great, insightful, authoritative teacher as many of the people held, but rather a weak man with weak reasoning and intellectual powers holding to a weak and unbiblical doctrine. You know, friends, some questions are, are fine to ask. And questions are encouraged here. Questions about doctrine, what we believe. Questions about ethics, how we should live. So, so if you are a skeptic, I hope you feel welcome here today. Because you are in the midst of a people who, though we're trusting in Christ, have not figured it all, figured it all out. We've got a fair share of questions as well. I mean, we live in the same physical world as you do. We see some of the same things as you do. We have some of the same natural tendencies as you do to think that what we see is all there is. We've got plenty of questions, which is one reason why we gather together and come to church, to sit under God's word so that we might hear his answers. But you know, not all questions are equal. Some questions are disingenuous. Asked, not because you really want to know the answer, but rather simply setting the other person up to look bad and your opposition to their stance to look comparatively superior. The Sadducees here are an example of that. Their denial of the resurrection from the start doesn't leave any room for questioning the certainty of their own position. Only the position of others. Even the position of the resurrection and the resurrector himself. Friends, denial is dangerous. Especially denial of what the Bible teaches and denial of who the Bible points to. Jesus Christ. And the nature of it is that it grows more and more stubborn the more unwilling you are to trust what is clear in the scriptures, even if it seems contrary to your reasoning. Don't lift yourself up as the standard upon which all arguments must be tested. You are not all wise, God is. He knows better than you, can do far more than you or I can ever imagine. Which leads to our fourth and final observation from this passage that divine wisdom and divine power defeat everything. Divine wisdom and divine power defeat everything. And Jesus has been, up to this point, silenced. He's let the, the Sadducees present their seemingly clever scenario and question, poke fun at the idea of a resurrection, which must have been striking to Jesus. I mean, if they only knew what he was about to do in five short days, the very thing that they were saying can't be done. Be resurrected. In any case, he, he hears them out and finally responds in verse 29 with three short words. You are wrong. What a gracious thing for God to do to us. To tell us that we're wrong before it's too late to crush our pride and our ego before he has to crush us for our pride and our ego. 
the Sadducees were out to prove that they were right and Jesus was wrong. Jesus' words put things in the proper order. God is right and you are wrong. But again, he shows grace. He doesn't simply say a statement. He provides reasons. Why are you wrong about the resurrection? Your supposed superior view of it, that there is none? Well, look at the the last half of verse 29. Because you don't know the scriptures, nor the power of God. It's quite a biting indictment to tell religious leaders they don't know the scriptures. I mean, in verse 24, they just quoted the scripture, quoted the command from Deuteronomy. Of course they know the scriptures. But Jesus shows us here that that you might know what a scripture says, but not understand what it means. There's a way to read and use the Bible that seems right to a man, but its end leads to destruction. You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God, what God is able to do. And Jesus takes those two indictments and addresses them in reverse order. First, you don't know the power of God. That's basically what denying the resurrection is tantamount to, doubting God's power. It's saying that death is stronger than the author of life, that God can't, isn't able to raise a corpse. But how could that be if he's God? I mean, he's omnipotent, all-powerful. How could that be when he spoke the entire universe into existence? And if he is upholding the entire universe, second by second, moment by moment, by the word of his power, how could God not raise a body from the ground when he created a body from the ground? He formed Adam from the dust and breathe the breath of life into his nostrils. How could God not bring life to death when he brought life to a body as good as dead and giving Abraham and Sarah a child when he was 100 and she was 90? How could God lack the power to remove death as an obstacle to life when he had the power to remove the waters of the Red Sea so that they stood up like mountains on each side of the Israelites as they passed through on dry ground. I mean, were we talking about a president, we'd have to talk about executive powers. Were we talking about a governor or police department, we'd have to talk about jurisdictional powers. Were we talking about a CEO, we'd have to talk about corporate powers. That is, were we talking about any man or any woman in any position, we'd have to talk about limited powers. But we're talking about God, to whom belongs all power and all authority. There is nothing too hard for him. Not the hard-packed ground over a dead body, nor the hard shell packed over a dead heart. Resurrection for man impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Well, the Sadducees are out to make a mockery of it. Notice how Jesus matter-of-factly says in verse verse 30, there is a resurrection. God is able to bring it about, and he will. 
And in this resurrection, in this life to come, God will transform not only our existence from temporal to eternal, but also our relationships. We will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but will be like angels in heaven. You see, the Sadducees wrongly assumed that some supposed resurrection would be identical exactly to earthly existence. And so their little scenario played on that belief. They thought their wisdom could win the argument. But they discounted God's wisdom. Their scenario falls completely to pieces because there won't be any marriage at all in heaven. No sex in heaven. Now, some of y'all might be ready to opt out at that point. Well, don't. Because the joy and love experienced here in the relationship between a husband and a wife will be multiplied times infinity there. This exclusive and intimate loving relationship here is pointing forward to something far better to come. When our love and our joy will broaden as our hearts are enlarged and free from sin. To love not just one person for life, but all God's people perfectly for all eternity. There is a far better life ahead, beloved. A better life that God will powerfully bring about and that awaits those who are in a relationship with him. A life that transcends death. That brings us to Jesus' indictment that these Sadducees don't, don't know the scriptures either. I mean, look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And Jesus knows they only read the, the books of Moses. So he goes to a book of Moses. He quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, asking them, haven't you read this one? This is one of your books. Have you, have you read this? It's the passage where God is speaking to Moses at the burning bush, revealing himself to him before he sends him out on what seems like a death wish to rescue the people of Israel from captivity to almighty Pharaoh in Egypt. And as he speaks to Moses, God notes his relationship to the Jewish patriarchs of the past, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who'd been dead for hundreds of years by now. And yet God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He speaks as if his relationship with them still exists. Because even though their bodies are buried, their souls are still very much alive. Amen. Awaiting a final day when body will be resurrected, united with soul at that great resurrection day. Amen. You see, when the eternal God entered into a covenant relationship with them, it was a relationship that would last not simply for a lifetime, but forever. When God pledged, I will be your God, and you will be my people, there was not a term limit to his promise. He is the covenant-keeping God of his people for eternity. And his people will be with him for eternity. 
Death does not frustrate God's plans. Death gives way to life. Life eternal for all those who are in a relationship with him. But how do you have a relationship with him? That brings us to the person speaking here at the close of this passage. Jesus. He is the eternal son of God who came to earth as a man. God become flesh. For what purpose? To bring people like us into an eternal relationship with God. What separates us from God is our sin. The sin that we noted earlier leads to death. But God means for us to have life, life everlasting. And so amazingly, God put forth his own son to death. Even though he had no sins, he was perfect and blameless. But Jesus Christ loved us so much that he laid down his life for our sins. He took our sins in his body on the tree. He served as our substitute, as our representative, suffering and dying, enduring all the stored up wrath against sinners for us on behalf of all those who trust in him. Oh, the horror of what happened at Calvary 2,000 years ago when Jesus was put to death on that Friday. Oh, the horror that haunted his followers as his body lay in the tomb on Saturday. Listen to their lamenting. They crucified my Lord. But oh, the joy one bright Sunday morning when the tomb was broken open and the God-man walked out. The one who had died walked out of the grave. He is God of the living, not the dead. That's what the angels expressed when his disciples came to the tomb looking for him. Why do you seek the living among the dead? He has risen. And friends, that's good news for us. Because if he has risen, then all of us who turn from our sins and put our trust in Jesus' death for our sins will be risen. We'll be raised to newness of life, eternal life forever. If he has risen, it means that the sins that stood against us have been completely paid. If he has risen, it means that God's judgment on us has been satisfied in full. If he has risen, it means that death no longer has any hold on any of those in relationship with him. If he has risen, it means that we have no fear of hell, no fear of death. No fear of the grave. If he has risen, it means that we can have hope in the midst of hurt. Celebration in the midst of sorrow, steadfastness in the shadow of death. Knowing that it is not final but temporary. Conquered forever by King Jesus, who has risen and ascended into heaven, soon to return to raise up everyone who believes in him to eternal life. Actually, to raise up everyone to eternal life. Amen. Yes, friends, everybody will live in eternity. Amen. The question is, where will you spend it? Eternity in hell or eternity in heaven? The answer lies in what will you do with Jesus? Will you, like the Pharisees or the Sadducees, 
doubt his power, reject his authority, deny his lordship? If so, then what awaits you is rejection of you as well and condemnation of you to eternal torment. But if you turn from your disbelief, if you turn from your rebellion and put your trust in Christ Jesus alone, you can be guaranteed eternity in heavenly bliss. United to Jesus by faith, brought into an eternal relationship with God, where he will say to you, I am your God, and you will be my people forever. Friends, don't doubt God's power. He is able to grant life after death. Get to know it today for yourself by trusting in Jesus. If you're already trusting in him, look forward to that day when the Lord will break through the the clouds and come home for his bride. What a joy it is that Jesus is risen. What a joy it is that in him we are risen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is sure and true that every single word of the Lord will prove true. And so, Lord, we're not here this morning believing some fairy tales. We're not here this morning trying to make people feel good, trying to increase offerings, Lord, or increase membership totals, Lord. We're here telling the truth from your word, that those of us who die in Jesus Christ will live forever with him. Lord, we pray that you would also press on the other truths. Those of us who die apart from Jesus Christ will live forever apart from him in eternal hell and torment. Oh, Lord, we pray that none would leave this morning that way. Bring everyone into your fold. Thank you for the wonderful, majestic work of Christ on the cross for us. Thank you that he died for us. He lived for us. And he rose again for us. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would continue to trust in him. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.